We turn this evening to the prophecy of Joel. Joel is tucked away between the prophets of Hosea and Amos. Turning to chapter 2 of Joel. We begin to read at verse 15. Joel chapter 2 verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders, that has to do with the elderly. Gather the children, those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. There is something more important right now even than getting married. It must be put off to accomplish and do what is required here. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. That is the altar of burnt offering. And let them say, Spare thy people, the Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Or more directly in Babylon, Where is now your God, who couldn't even save you and spare you from this? Maybe you should worship our gods. Your God evidently is powerless. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil. Ye shall be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make ye a reproach among the heathen. I will remove far off from you the northern army, will drive him into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the east sea. That's the Dead Sea, and his hinder part towards the utmost sea. That's the Mediterranean Sea. And his stink shall come up, and his ill savor shall come up, because he hath done great. That is, dreadful things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great. That is, dreadful things. He's going to do dreadful things to this enemy. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring. For the tree beareth her fruit. The fig and tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he hath given you the former rain moderately. He will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And the floor shall be full of wheat, and the fats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the cankerworm, the caterpillar, the palmer worm, my great army, which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wonderfully, wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Thus far the reading of the prophetic passage. Our text runs from verses 18 through 27. A word that begins, of course, with these words, then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Meaning, then will the Lord lift his judgment off his land and in pity restore to his people their inheritance, and the kingdom. But the question is, when, Lord, when? And the answer, according to the context, is 
when there is this great day of repentance and there is this calling upon the name of the Lord, that's when. We began to read at verse 15, but if you go back to verse 12 and 13, you read, There also saith the Lord, Turn even to me with your whole heart and with fasting, weeping, mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, great in kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. And then notice this, Who knoweth that he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him? That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? You might expect the prophet to say, he's slow to anger, rend your hearts and not your garments, because I assure you, he will hear and leave a blessing behind. But that's not how the Holy Spirit phrases it. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind. Why phrase it that way? Because of the seriousness of the transgression, of course. Unless the people think all we have to do is mutter and utter a few proper words and he is obligated to us to remove our transgressions and to forgive us. After all, he's God, and we call ourselves his people. So that's that. Just say the words, and he's obligated. Is he? Inherently? And to remind us that if and when the Lord, in his mercy, forgives the transgressions and does not deal with is people as they deserve. It is a matter that is unfathomable in mercy. He is a God, we may be thankful to say, who is so merciful that he is inclined to forgive people from whom we would withhold forgiveness. And say, oh no, Lord, not those, not that one, not in light of what he or she has done, not only in immorality, but perhaps has done to me and to us. That one is beyond the pale. And yet the Lord is a God who will forgive even those whom we are not ready yet to extend the same courtesy because we see their sins are that serious. Ever hear of a man named Jonah? Jonah gets you to Nineveh with the gospel and remind them and tell them judgment is coming and they better repent. And Jonah says to Nineveh, capital of the Assyrians? Not me, Lord. And he gets himself on a ship to sail out of the land to us as if he's going to escape the Lord, doesn't he? Why? Because Jonah says to himself, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to call for repentance and they're going to put sackcloth, rip their clothes in sackcloth and ashes and the Lord is going to spare them. You just watch and see. And I want no part of it. And the Lord has to fish him out of the sea and sends him to Nineveh. And he speaks the words that are appointed. And sure enough, wouldn't you know it, they're spared. Ever hear the prodigal son? He wasted his living. He awakens in his impoverishment and in his dire need and he heads home and wouldn't you know it there stands the father looking down the road 
waiting for him. And before the son can hardly get out of his mouth, how sorry he is, I'm not even worthy to be thy son. The father embraces him and then has a feast for him and restores to him the inheritance that he has wasted. And the elder brother has to watch that and says, you know what, it just isn't fair. fair. From a certain human point of view, you're right. It was not fair. God be thankful, love, that he does not judge and he does not work according to our standard of fairness, because if he did, which of us wouldn't have long ago been disinherited? What inheritance would we have left? With God beloved, to God be thanked, it's not a matter of fairness. It's a matter of mercy and of justice. And in his mercy, he provides the justice. He himself provides the justice in his great mercy. And a people are forgiven and a people are spared and in the end, even blessed. And that's, you understand, our only hope. That's any man's only hope. And that was Israel's only hope. And that's our text as well. What our text is all about is this mercy of God and this mercy of God that is granted in response to this repentance that he calls them And in the way of repentance and following this repentance, they receive the expression and the abundance of this great mercy. And that in many ways is underscored by the phrase that really stands at the heart of this particular passage. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm, caterpillar, palmer worm, and so forth. What that phrase is, is a word of encouragement as we move, are moved in repentance and to encourage us unto repentance, but also to magnify, you see, the astounding mercy of Jehovah God. Because the mercy of Jehovah God in the end is not only what he saves us from. But mercy has to do with blessing and what he restores to us in spite of what we ourselves have forfeited. This is the Jehovah God, you see, that's set forth in the passage. I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten. First of all, when this prophecy was to be fulfilled, what was to be and is being restored, and with the promises attached, or if you will, what blessing, because these are promised blessings, what promised, what, with what promised blessings attached. When this prophecy was to be fulfilled, and who are to be the recipients of the blessings of this word. Remember that the prophecy of Joel has to do with Joel declaring the coming of the Babylonian captivity and the great ruin and devastation that the Babylonian army will wreck upon the whole of the land. But more than that, the prophet goes on to speak of the Lord's assurance that at some point in the future, he will also return them from their captivity and bring them back to the promised land. But more than that, this is a prophecy not only of returning to the land from the land of Babylon, 
but also you see a word concerning the restoration of the inheritance and of the kingdom. And the question is, when is that kingdom that by the Babylonian captivity has been taken from the line of David because they were no longer kings worthy that would ever set upon the throne. When is that kingdom going to be restored to Israel with a king who was worthy of the name? When, Lord, when? And as you must know, there are those who look at such a passage and they will tell you, well, this is something that has to do yet with the future. Not only is this a prophecy that lay in the future for Israel as it faced captivity. But even for the New Testament age, this is a prophecy that speaks of the coming of a future millennium, of a golden age, an age that will be golden for the Jewish nation at last when they, according to certain promises of the Old Testament, at least at last acknowledge that this Jesus who has come again a second time is their rightful Messiah and their king and receive these tremendous earthly blessings and their land which is now arid suddenly blossoms like the rose and it's fruitful with figs and vines and they live almost as in a garden of Eden all over again and the days are coming following some some rapture and some tribulation and Jewish, and then Jesus returning again. So they want to interpret the text, the prophecy. They are mistaken. They are sadly mistaken. They are grievously mistaken. We have not, not, must have nothing to do with that view. The prophet is certainly speaking of a time that lies in the future to those whom he prophesies but he is not prophesying simply of a return from the, from the Babylonian captivity, and he's not prophesying concerning some future millennialistic age that will accrue primarily simply to those of Jewish extraction who are blood related to Father Abraham. The Spirit is leading him to prophesy something much more glorious and, if you will, inclusive than that. It's not exclusive of the Gentiles, it's inclusive of the Gentiles, and that's what we must see and understand. Even, you know, the pre-mills of whom we are speaking understand that the prophecy is not, re, not, not fulfilled simply when the Jews return under Zerubbabel from the Babylonian captivity and begin to some, somehow resettle Palestine. Because the passage in which we speak of speaks of great agricultural prosperity, you know. Speaks of these vines and these fig trees and verdant, verdant uh, growth and uh, former rains and latter rains and vines and fats and all, all the rest. Great prosperity agriculturally. And anybody who knows their Bible history realizes when they came back from the Babylonian captivity, it was not a time of agricultural prosperity. Prosperity. It was a time of, of struggle and of labor, and some prospered all right, but they had to drag it out of the land, as it were. And a lot of it had to do with manual bringing of water by irrigation and what not. So even the pre-mills say it was not fulfilled simply when they returned from the Babylonian captivity. But neither was it fulfilled in the New Testament age. This is simply a parenthesis, and it has yet to be fulfilled. We wait for the fulfillment of these words. And these are not words for you and me as Gentiles, though we be believers. These are words really for those of Jewish extraction. So we sit on the outside, as it were, looking in. No, beloved, nothing of that perish the thought. These are words that are being fulfilled even as we sit here. They have a beginning of fulfillment and they will have a culmination of fulfillment when Christ returns again. But the beginning, you see, goes back to the beginning of the New Testament age, which in many ways has to do with the birth of Christ and the death of Christ and what comes as a result of the death and resurrection of Christ. We are in the time of, of the fulfillment of this golden age. How do we know that? We can say that with certainty. 
read the very next text that follows our text, the very next verse. He shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, says God in verse 27 and then 28. And it shall come to pass that afterward I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, and upon your servants and handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit and show wonders in heaven. When did that occur? Children sitting here know, know when that occurred, don't you? That's not something that has yet to occur. That has occurred about 2,000 years ago on the day that we know as Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we know that not only because the event occurred, but by the very words of the Apostle Peter as he states this in a forthright way in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the 120 in that upper room with those various signs, and then they go forth and they speak in various languages, and those who hear them, because this is a Jewish holy day, and there are many from the whole of the nation from around the Mediterranean world that are there, hear them speak in their dialects, say they must be drunk. And Peter says in verse 15, no, no, we are not drunken as you suppose. This is only nine o'clock in the morning, third hour. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in those days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And he quotes Joel 2, 28, and says this is the beginning of the fulfillment of that great prophecy that you find in Joel chapter Two, the kingdom is coming to pass. The king is enthroned. No, not on Jerusalem's throne, but he is enthroned. He has ascended up on high, and he is enthroned in heaven. And he is pouring out his Holy Spirit as the beginning of his kingdom and his rule of grace upon the earth. And this is a word that's not simply meant to those for those of Jewish extraction who have some kind of a blood claim to Father Abraham. This is a word that is to go to all the Gentiles because as our text states, you know, or I say, I say the context in 28, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Notice that phrase. And when Peter quotes this, he makes a point of that. He says, it shall come to pass, I will pour my spirit upon all Flesh, not simply about upon those of Jewish extraction, but those also who have Gentile connections because the gospel is going to go into all the world and you will find the Spirit also working in the hearts of those who are uncircumcised and who are of the Gentile number. All flesh this is meant for. And of course that's Strengthened by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, when he says in chapter 3 towards the conclusion, you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism, of course, the sign and symbol, not only the blood of Christ, but of the Holy Spirit as the water of life. As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free. And if he be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. Jesus the Messiah is the seed of Abraham. In a certain sense you could say he has the life of Abraham. And if you are a believer, he is in you by his spirit. And you have the life of Christ Jesus, which ties in with the life of Abraham. That is, you are spiritual sons and daughters and related to Abraham by faith and by the reality of the presence of the seed of the woman and of the seed of Abraham, Christ Jesus. And as surely as this Christ Jesus is the great heir to the inheritance 
those who are in him and of him are heirs also to this inheritance and the promised kingdom and the blessings of that promised kingdom. That's, you see, clear from Scripture. You would think it would be clear to those of a pre-mill persuasion, but they have locked themselves in a system, into a system and are difficult to persuade otherwise. Be that as it may, this is the truth of the matter, and these words are coming to fulfillment, even as we speak in the growth and the gathering of the kingdom. Now, you may wonder why we insist on this with such a vigor and a vehemence. And there are various reasons, but one of the chief reasons is in the interest of the Holy Scriptures being ours, beloved, because if the pre-mills view is true, then there is chapter after chapter in the prophets that really don't apply to us. They all have to do with some so-called future golden age that applies to the natural sons of Abraham in some future millennialistic age, and we are simply on the outside looking in. Whereas in reality, the whole of the scriptures are ours as believers, and when we turn to the pages of the prophets, God is speaking to us in his warnings, exhortations, and admonitions, but also with respect to his promises, you see. So we have the whole of the scriptures as the word of God to us, not just a section of it and large sections just snipped out and just for that Jewish extraction, that is yet to come to pass. No, Lord, no, beloved. The scriptures speak to us today. The prophets speak to us today with the warnings, admonitions, and also, God be thanked, the promises. We too are the heirs and we are the benefactors of the kingdom and its power and of his blessings, the blessings of the king. Now, question is, what marks that great day? And when this prophecy, does this prophecy begin to be fulfilled? As this prophecy begins to be fulfilled, and what marks that great day, beloved, is this matter, this truth of repentance. The day of Pentecost was a great day of repentance. And there is a certain fruit, a blessing upon that repentance that has to do with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But that repentance itself, you understand, it was the work of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit brought to bear upon the hearts of a segment of the nation the words of the Apostle Paul. And he brought to them quite a word, didn't he? Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter. And he brought to them quite a word, didn't he? Simon Peter, after explaining that they were not drunk, but this is the fulfillment of the words that have been prophesied and even brings David into the picture and so on. And then he finally comes to the conclusion of the matter, and uh, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus, whom you as a nation crucified, remember, Lord and Christ. You understand that, don't you, Jews who are listening to me this fine day, says the Apostle Peter. You put to death the promised Messiah. You assented to the death of your own king, of the seed of David. You slew the one who was and is the son of God. That's your monstrous iniquity. And you tell me now how that is to be pardoned. Do you understand the fullness of your guilt? And when they heard this, they were stabbed in their hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we then do? What are we left with if we are guilty of that monstrous sin? Because certainly there is nothing that we can do to merit any favor and there's nothing that we can do to undo what we have done. 
What are we left with? And the apostle says, this is what you're going to have to do. You're simply going to have to cast yourself upon the mercy of Jehovah God and plead that he will pardon you even for this great iniquity. Who knoweth if he will leave a blessing behind? Call upon his name and confess the iniquity of your sins and transgressions and cast yourself upon his boundless mercy. <coughs> Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice the gift. He doesn't say you receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is already in their hearts stabbing them. But the gift has to do with the fullness, you see, of the Spirit in his New Testament manifestation with understanding and knowledge and all the rest. For the promise is unto you and to your children, to all that are afar off. And what's the fruit of that, beloved? You have this great day of repentance, and they hear this word, and they that gladly received his word were baptized, and that same day were added to them 3,000 souls. So suddenly the 120 become 3,120. 3,000, of course, simply being uh, estimation, approximation that is close enough. And perhaps there was even added to that men and children. So suddenly there is this day of repentance and this confession. And it doesn't just stop here on this Sunday morning, because Pentecost, of course, occurs on a Sunday morning. But this goes on for a few days so that when you get to chapter Chapter 4, you have a, another, another reading concerning the hearing of, of the word just a few days later when they are, added, they are laid hold upon after they have preached the gospel. Howbeit many of them who heard the word believed, and the number of men was about 5,000. So to the 3,000 are added 5,000 men, women, and children. So now they number in the tens of thousands, and you have the beginning, you see, of Shall we call it a revival? Well, really, it's a day, great day of conversion and of an ingathering, repentance, confession, and casting themselves upon the mercy of God in the name of the very one whom they crucified. That's the irony of it, you know. If you're going to be saved from the consequence of the severity of your sin, of crucifying God's own son, you're going to have to remind God's son of your sin and come in the very name of the one whom you've crucified. And wonder of wonders, beloved, God hears that name as they confess their sin in his name and plead for mercy, and he forgives them and blesses them with the unction, the function, unction, the operation of the Spirit of Christ in his fullness and with his understanding and spiritual growth. There is the answer, that great day. But you understand, do you not, it is simply a beginning because evangelism and mission work didn't end there. What you had, of course, is what we may call the harvest, the harvest of souls, a great in gathering, the gospel going forth, and God working, Christ himself as the ascended Christ, working by the power of the Spirit to awaken those who are his own to the word of the, of the gospel, and then you have what we might call the golden age. It's interesting that in chapter, chapter 3, you have a, a reference to what is called the times of refreshing. Repent ye therefore, verse 19, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, and the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Isn't that what Joel 2 is prophesying about? Talks about the early and the latter rain of a time of refreshing, and the early and the latter rain having reference to the outpouring, the, the rain of the Spirit upon soil that has been prepared. And then you have, as a result, Harvest, don't you? The harvest of what? The harvest of souls, the great ingathering that goes during the whole of the New Testament age. 
as Christ Jesus goes forth conquering and to conquer. Now when we proceed to preach a text like Joel 2 in that fashion that it has to do with the New Testament age and has to do with the sending out of the, of the gospel and the great harvest of souls by the means of the preaching of the word, then the pre-mills try a last tack refutation by saying, what gives you the right? What gives you people the right to turn what is clearly agricultural language and to spiritualize it? Because read Joel 2. It's as plain as the nose on a man's face that it has to do with agricultural blessings. Speaks here of rain. It speaks of pastures that spring up, trees that bear fruit, fig trees and vine trees, and uh, great floors full of wheat and fats that overflow with wine and with oil. That's all agricultural. Has to do with some kind of land that's very, made very fruitful. And you people just start talking about the hearts of men and spiritualize everything. What gives you the right to do that? No, beloved, it's not a matter of what gives us the right to do that. It's who gives us the right to do that. And the one who gives us the right to do that is none less, none, none, the, is none other than the word himself, Christ Jesus. He taught in parables, didn't he? Concerning the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like, and he's not speaking about heaven, you understand. He's talking about the kingdom that has its source in heaven where he's reigning. So the source of his kingdom comes from heaven. The source is not an earthly king. It has to do with a king in heaven. The kingdom of heaven and of God. What's the first parable? A sower went forth to sow. And he scattered the seed, and it fell on all kinds of different soil. And three of the very varieties of soil, in the end, bore no fruit. The devil came and took it away, and persecution and all the rest. But there was another brand of soil that had been cultivated, and that bore fruit. The kingdom of heaven, you apostles, will go forth spreading the word, and there will be a harvest, you see, unto salvation and even a variety of godliness. And then he goes to the second parable, Matthew 13. Second parable, wheat and tares, agricultural, growing up together for a whole time. Don't pull the wheat up, don't pull the tares up yet. They have to live together during a whole time space. And at the end, the angels will come forth and they will perform the harvest and the separation between the wheat and the tares. And the wheat representing whom? The elect and the believers into the barns in heaven, but the tares and thrown into the everlasting fire. And then he adds a couple of other parables at the time, and they have to do with what? Span, span of time. Don't expect this kingdom suddenly just to appear in one fell swoop. It's like a seed of a mustard tree, very small at the beginning, growing up, and over time finally having the branches that become shade and provide the nesting for the birds. Or like leaven in a loaf of bread that develops over a period of time. Beloved, the New Testament age. What could be clearer? The New Testament age. Agricultural language, but the great preacher himself using that, as in Joel to speak of spiritual realities having to do with the gathering of souls and the salvation of his people and the blessings that will come from the throne of the king in his mercy and in his grace. And so, beloved, the golden age, you may believe it or not want to believe it as you will, but the simple fact is that the New Testament age is a golden age. The church has many perils. The church has many persecutions. There are troubles and trials. And the church is always a remnant of the whole of humanity. Nonetheless, beloved, the gospel has run for 2,000 years, and it has been from victory unto victory. 
the kingdom of Satan has been cast down heart after heart after heart as Christ has gathered his church, his wheat into preparing for the, for the barn, for the great judgment day, the culmination of all things, has he, is he not? And he has never yet suffered one defeat, not one of those whom he has gathered to himself has Satan ever reclaimed and brought back to himself. There are some who have made a certain profession an empty profession without deepness of root, but they never were Christ. That is, those in with hearts, Christ, uh, Satan's kingdom were cast down, and they were set free. They have never been brought back to bondage again. Victory after victory, beloved, the ascended Christ, the kingdom and the victories of the kingdom from the point of view of the gospel and the victories of Christ and the gathering of his own and the fulfillment of his word, the golden age and our ancestry, our Gentile ancestry included, and then finally, we ourselves will sit here with our children and children's children this evening. God be thanked. But now, that brings us to what I consider to be the very heart of this wonderful prophecy, and I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten. And then it speaks of the character the canker worm, the caterpillar, and the pommel worm, just understand that these all have reference to locusts. And what you have there are simply the locusts in different stages of development as they go from larvae and then from a certain kind of insect without wings until finally when they are fully adult, they are a winged insect called the locust. And, of course, they gather in the billions in their masses and when they go forth, what do they leave behind? Nothing but devastation. Horrible, horrible devastation. In fact, within this past year, though the news media did not carry much of it, there was such a plague of locusts in Africa, and they are fearful of the eggs that have been laid as a result of what's going to happen in a couple of years from now in that same area. But the reference then to the locust and the restoration of the years that the locust have eaten. This is, you understand, a prophecy of the destruction of Babylon, first of all. This is not the first reference to the locust. The prophecy opens basically with a reference to this plague the word of the Lord to Joel, the son of Pethul, the old men give ear inhabitants and tell your children of it. And then this, that which the palmer worm hath left, shall the, the locust hath eaten, and the locust hath left the canker worm, and that which the canker worm hath left hath the caterpillar eaten. Awaken ye drunkards, and weep and lament, and so on. And then God speaks of his judgment in verse in chapter 12. Blow the trumpet in Zion, the day of the Lord's coming is nigh at hand. And he speaks of this day of clouds and darkness, a great people and a strong, the like of which have never been before, and he likens them to a fire devouring, and then as well to this locust, you see, this battle, this nation that comes from the north, because the Babylonians came around the Fertile Crescent, and then they came down from the north, and they left nothing but destruction behind. And... They shall run like mighty men, climb walls like men of war, and march every one his ways. And uh, there is nothing left in the end after the invasion of the Babylonians as the judgment of God, but a land that is completely devastated, that Jerusalem itself demolished down to its last stone, and fires burning in every corner of the land. And the people marched off for 70 years of captivity, so that the land might have a rest from their double-mindedness, their so-called worship of God, while they pursued idols and the immorality of idols besides. The hand of God's judgment through the Babylonians as though they were a plague of locusts. But now comes our text, beloved. And the text says... The Lord will be jealous of his land and pity his people. And you understand that jealousy is true of God, not as something that we might flinch from, 
This is not speaking of God as jealous of someone. That's an envy. God is never jealous of someone as though he doesn't have something. He is jealous for something, that which is precious to him. That's proper jealousy, you know, to be, precious, to be jealous of someone that is precious to you. Or your good name, when perhaps it's being slandered or, or what have you. And you may seek to protect the good name, a jealousy for your good name and reputation in the community. Or a young man who's engaged to a young lady. And then a third party thinks he's going to intrude. And you're jealous for that relationship. And you do what you can to protect that relationship. Because that relationship is precious to you. You're jealous for it. Properly so. So God says, I'm jealous for my people. For my relationship to them. And I'm going to do what I can as God. To protect this people in the end. And to save them and the relationship itself. And I'm going to do that by ri rising up and destroying Babylon. And you know as well as I do that the God, Jehovah God, rose up in one night after the handwriting on the wall. Many, many tickle you farzin, and mighty Babylon fell. The text speaks of that, doesn't it? it speaks of I will remove far off from you the northern army. I will drive him into a land barren, and uh, I'm going to drown him in the sea, as it were, because that's how plagues of locusts were often taken care of. A great wind would rise up as they were in the air and drown them in the sea. In fact, you can read from St. Augustine in his book of a plague that happened of locusts and a great wind that drove them into the Mediterranean Sea and delivered the land and, and drowned the locusts by the, by the billions so God says, I will arise and I will destroy this nation and allow you to return to the promised land. But you understand that's not the fulfillment. That's a fulfillment, you might say, but it's only represent, representative of a greater full, fulfillment. Because the question arises, who does Babylon represent? Because when they returned in the end to the promised land, they didn't have their own king. They were under the heel of Persia, and then under the Greeks, and then the Romans. They, they never had their own king on their own throne in Jerusalem. And the question is, who does this Babylon then represent? And you know as well as I do that in the end, Babylon represents the power of Antichrist, doesn't it? Which is also present in this present age, the power of Antichrist, and stirring and trying to accomplish his foul desires and the silencing of the spread of the gospel and of the church of God under the leadership of whom? Of Satan himself. That's interesting, you know, you go to the book of the Revelation in chapter 9, the fifth angel sounds and a star falls from heaven and a, to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. So this is an angel that comes down. He opens the bottomless pit and there's a great smoke and out of the smoke come locusts upon the earth, and to them is given power as scorpions on the earth is given power. And they kill and they torment for five months. And the shapes of the locusts were like horses prepared for battle and their heads and so on. This is one of the judgments of God upon the, upon the world toward the end of, of the age. And now verse 11. And they had a king over them who was the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abdon. In the Greek tongue, his name is Apollyon. One woe is past, behold, two more follow. So the locusts represent Babylon, and Babylon represents the power of Antichrist under the leadership of Satan himself, whose great purpose is, as you know, to destroy the church of Christ in the New Testament age and to prevent the spread of the gospel and his losing soul after soul after soul as the gospel has victory after victory after victory. But the prophecy in the end of Joel is, however mighty might be the power of the Satan and of Antichrist, in the end, it's God's church under the leadership of their great king Christ Jesus, who was going to have the victory. Christ comes. He arises from the dead, doesn't he? And in that rising from the dead, he has the decisive victory over the power of death. And he has the right of claim over Satan himself. And he has the right to deliver every last soul from Satan's bondage and from Satan's rule.
And so he has done. But beloved, we must understand that when the text speaks of this restoring to you the years the locust hath eaten, he's not simply speaking about missions in the sense of a harvest of souls and the gathering of the church. He's also talking about the lives of those who are saved. That when it comes to the lives of those whom he has saved, he will restore the years that the locust have eaten. He promises, you see, to deliver great sinners from the bondage of their sins and to restore them the things which they brought upon in ruin of their own lives. I'm going to give you an example, and then a couple of other examples following this. An example of recent vintage lifted from an obituary of a man who was once a member of our congregation in Northern Ireland. And his son wrote up this obituary and put it in the Bellamina Press because this man also served a year or two as the mayor of Bellamina. And his son, a God-fearing man, wanted that village to remember, that city to remember the kind of man his father became. I was handed this obituary about three years ago when I came there and conspicuous by his absence was this John McCulley, a fine Christian and believer, just as though conspicuous by his absence as I come here this large day is Henry Vandermullen. And he's missed, is he not? And others as well. And John McCauley was missed by this group with his fine Christianity and his stalwart confession of faith, whom the pastor of this church one time, Reverend Hankel, knew well and appreciated. But he went his way, and I was handed the obituary, and I learned something I'd never known before. This is, this is the title of the obituary in the press. The first thing to go was the cocktail cabinet. How would you like to have that written over your obituary? But at least it said, it's gone. And he writes this up, June 1961, when this John McCauley was about 25 years of age. A depressed, penniless, ill-clad man sat avidly listening to a tape recorder, and he would rewind it and play it again, and you would notice that he was particularly moved by one part of the tape. This was during a certain uh, evangelical um, uh, a revival in that, in that city by a Calvinistic pastor, and it was recording a sermon he had preached this man on the subject of the broken family circle in his great Bellamina campaign in 1950. And this pastor said in the course of this speech, Fathers, would you be glad and thankful if your family and sons followed in your footsteps? And he played that again and again because he had an alcoholic problem and he had gambled all his livelihood away and they were penniless and ready to be put out on the streets and he had lost his job as well as a result. He was a member of the church, he had been baptized, remained a member of the church, but he had been living dissolute life almost like the prodigal son and his family was now destitute and he hears this word, and his son said in time, that word took hold of him and the awful sense of his own guilt, and he threw himself upon the mercy of Christ, and he was transformed by grace, never to be ensnared by the sin of alcohol and gambling again. I will restore the years that the locust have eaten the power of grace to transform, you see. And this man becomes one who becomes a father that his son appreciated and was thankful for and was as an example to him and lived as a godly man and was even as a quiet pillar in the congregation of Ballymena and of Northern Ireland. Just one example, you see. 
a life dissolute, the work of grace, and then productive, not only for himself, but for others of the body of Christ as well. Ever heard of a woman named Rahab? A harlot? She casts her lot with the people of God in the way of repentance and is found where? In the genealogy of the Lord Jesus, if you can believe it. I will restore the years that the locust hath eaten. A certain Saul of Tarsus who wrecked havoc in the churches, oh, he was a locust. And Christ arrests him and transforms him. And he becomes a mighty preacher of the gospel. And we here are even in some ways the fruit of his labors, are we not? I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Our lives too, beloved. It may be we have lived in this foolishness or that foolishness and there's consequence and this consequence and this scarcity. But there's the call to repentance and the casting oneself on the mercy of God. And who knows, who knows if he will turn and leave a blessing behind. And I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. He uses, you see, the power of the preaching of the gospel to accomplish that. I will speak with haste here. You find that in the chapter when it says there, when it speaks there of the of the early of the former reign and the latter reign, the former and the latter reign in moderation, and that reign really has to do with instruction and teaching, you see. You find that in Isaiah chapter 30, when it speaks of a people who are dwelling in Jerusalem, and the Lord will give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner anymore. And then I shall see thy teachers, and you shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you, turn, when you try to turn to the right ditch or to the left ditch, don't go that way, here's the right way. And then shall he give rain of thy seed, and thou shalt sow the ground with all, and the bread of increase in the earth, and shall be fat and plenteous, and that day shall thy cattle feed in large, large pastures. Notice, the teaching is like rain falling upon soil and bears forth fruit. As teachers, isn't it, with children who have skills, but they need the instruction of a teacher to develop those skills so that they can be productive. But so with a preacher, beloved. You have a young man who's a preacher here, and what does he preach? Keep the right ways of the Lord. Keep the Lord's day holy and use the Lord's day properly. And what? You will praise the Lord, but it will also be a benefit to you, won't it? To your spiritual growth and to your spiritual strengthening. Pray! Pray! You're going to have sermons on prayer when you get to the catechism in the last part. Why? To praise the Lord, but also for your own spiritual benefit and health and strength. Is it not so? Faithfulness in marriage. Because in faithfulness in marriage, there is benefits to self, not only, but to one's family. And even if one's marriage has unraveled to live faithfully in single life, and the Lord will even use that for one's benefit and the benefit of others. I will restore the years that the locust have eaten. Thank God for his mercy and for his faithfulness, beloved. And then there's attached these promises, and I'll just mention two. And the one has to do with being satisfied therewith. Verse 19 speaks of verse 19 of being satisfied therewith, and it speaks in verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and then also you shall never again be ashamed. Satisfied, beloved. That means you're full. You're happy. You have what you need. And it doesn't refer here in an agricultural way in the end of, a, of an abundance of food because you can be as rich as Midas, as they say, and a table full of food, and you're empty, and you know you're empty, and you're not satisfied. But you can be like a convert in China years ago who heard the gospel and had a handful of rice for the morning and a handful of rice for the evening, and they had the Lord Jesus and the hope of the gospel, the everlasting inheritance, and they were satisfied. You shall be satisfied. 
In the end comes the culmination, and you shall receive all things in his name. And the tongue of the scorner shall be silenced. Do more, no more reproach. Where is now thy God? And they laugh and they scorn. Comes the day of days, beloved, and they stand before the judgment of God, and they will see our God, and they will know who spoke truth and who held the truth, and they will be filled with a grief and a terror, and their tongues will be stopped, and reproach shall be no more. But our tongues shall be loose, shall they not? In praise, exultation, and gladness for our Lord has restored the years that the locusts have eaten and granted to us the true and the living king. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks, write it upon our hearts, and move us to thankfulness and grateful service, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.